Oh, I don't have a song. I don't have a song. You could do the LA, 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 but it's we've won the fucking lot. Do that for me. We've conquered all of Europe. We're never going to stop. From Paris down to Turkey, we've won the fucking lot. It's the LA, 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 that song. Yeah, we're using that, mate, so I hope you were recording. Well, hey, everybody. It is the week in the Tackle Podcast. That was the lovely voice of our friend Tim Horsey, who I really brilliantly tricked into singing that for our pre-show song this week. Um, I'm Tom Money. Great to have you with us. Um, before we say hello to Tim and we talk about the game this week, I will just mention Brian Dunseth is not here again this week with some some family issues, a bereavement in the family. You may well have seen his social media posts on it. Uh, Dunny, you'll be listening with envy to the quality of this broadcast, I know. We miss you. We love you. Love to the family. We look forward to having you back with us, hopefully next week. But whenever, whenever you can come back, we look forward to having you back and so do our listeners as well and we will read some of the reviews that people have been giving us later in the program to maybe cajole you to return but we love you we miss you we look forward to you coming back uh tim horsey is with me the singer of the program these days how do you feel about me tricking you into an, a, a pre-show song it was very nice yeah, betrayed, actually. You know, as we record this, it is 6.30 in the morning, my time. My voice isn't still fully there. I'm still trying to to build it up and to, to have that. I think people might have shut it off already to hear that at the beginning. So we might have lost a lot of listeners. We're going to have to look at the numbers and maybe reevaluate our uh, our strategy for opening the show, if that's... You if did that's a swear. You did a swear did. in the song. I have to bleep myself now. Thank You'll you bleep yourself. Much. So that means that you get one of the bleeps this week. So I've only allowed one for the entire program. But then do I we, get Danny's We know you don't up? follow. Yeah, I was going to say, we know you don't follow that rule anyway. I don't know how so. it goes. I don't know how it goes. Um, good weekend. Good show today, actually. No, Danny, but we are going to chat to Nizar Kinsella on what's happening with Chelsea and the whole Abramovich situation and exactly who owns Chelsea right now and is he trying to sidestep ownership because of the, the illegal occupation and war in Ukraine by the aggressive and aggressor, which is Russia and Vladimir Putin, ongoing. We, of course, wish everyone in Ukraine uh, well, and everyone involved in the conflict, well, um, and, and we hope it ends as peacefully and as quickly as possible. And there's been some great outpourings of emotion this week across football as well, which we saw at, uh, in the Premier League, at least. We saw it at Goodison Park with the tears of Zinchenko and, and Mikalenko. We saw it with Yeremchuk coming on uh, out in Portugal this week. We saw it at West Ham and the, the Yarmolenko shirt. So um, football has done its bit uh, to show its support for the people of Ukraine. And, and that's something we will do here as well. Uh, so we'll talk to Nizar Kinsella later. We'll also talk about Americans in Europe. As our friend Derek Ray joins us. Because uh, Derek Ray talks to us about Jesse Marsh in uh, for Leeds, in for BL. So we'll get to that. But let's start with the cup final, which I went to at the weekend. My favourite bit of the cup final this weekend, I love being at Wembley for big games. It is great. It, you know, it has its detractors still, new Wembley as opposed to old Wembley. But I think it's a brilliant stadium. I know there's issues with it and sort of needs a bit of work again. But the arch, they have made iconic. They have made that iconic. The old Swin Towers were iconic. The arch has now taken that mantle, I think. The designers deserve a lot of credit for that. The way they make the colours um, going into the stadium, it was the colours of the Ukrainian flag on the way out. It was the Liverpool colours as they won the final, of course. So that was fantastic. Atmosphere was brilliant. Real circumstance and ceremony to the whole thing with the national anthem being sung pre-game, which I always enjoy. I'm not a royalist or a particularly patriotic person in many, many ways. You know, I would, would get rid of the royal family tomorrow, which we absolutely should because no royal family should exist in 
the century in which we live. But, you know, we are where we are. It's always nice to hear the anthem. Um, but my favourite bit before we get to the game was Neil Barnett. Neil Barnett's little face. Neil Barnett's, well, actually massive face. Now, Neil Barnett, presenter Sirius XMFC, the Chelsea spy for 40-odd years, the former announcer at the club. He was on Chelsea TV for years. You know him, of course, from the football show. And he gets to a lot of games over here in the UK, mainly Chelsea games, in truth. I try and get him other clubs, but he doesn't want to go. <laughs> so he goes to most Chelsea games, taking the TalkSport International seat, which he's perfectly entitled to do, by the way. Just occasionally, I try and go to Chelsea games and they tell me Neil's there and he's a face and I'm not. But he's also very unpopular. So maybe they prefer me. I don't know. Um, but he say, Neil's there. made a lot of enemies. Yes. Not us yet. It sounds like we're enemies, but no, friends. Um, but I'm doing the commentary alongside our friend David Connolly, and he was sitting to my left, and I said to him, if you win, you'll come on the show, won't you? You'll come on the broadcast, won't you? And he was like, yeah, 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 of course I'll come on, of course I'll come on. Anyway, the penalties were obviously epic. 11-10 uh, on penalties, incredible shootout. The quality of the penalty is amazing. We'll talk about Kepa and all that in a sec, but uh, he still came on the show, Neil, uh, and he was, um, you know that bit where you're at a bar, and you say to your friend, oh, you see that see that blonde over there? I'm going to go and ask her out. I really like that blonde. But listen, first of all, I've just got to pop to the toilet. So if you could just hold my drink, right? And when I come back, I'm going to, um, I'm going to shout that blonde, all right? And your friend's like, yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries, mate. Pop to the toilet. You put a bit of uh, put a spray on. You might do your hair if you've still got any. That's where the ear where this story comes from. And you walk back out the toilets, and there's your friend kissing the blonde girl. And you pull that face. You're like, you mother... That was kind of the face Neil was pulling. See, I'm censoring myself now. But he still came on, and God bless him for doing so. But I suppose, you know, you will experience this as well, Tim. When you win a lot of things, I suppose you can take defeat a lot easier than someone like me when West Ham get knocked out by Sevilla or the crew lose MLS Cup final this year. I don't expect to be consolable. Uh, yeah, I mean... On two different fronts, two different fandoms. The Liverpool fandom, sure. I, I've mentioned a number of times on Grumpy Pundits on Sirius XMFC. Uh, I'm, I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan and catch. And they don't win a ton. They, they, are, they are one of those teams that is consistently pretty good, but don't always win the big, the whole thing. The Super Bowl. The superb owl, as it were. Um, and I take defeats pretty, especially when they get to those moments, um, pretty, pretty badly. That, that being said, for this one, just having to deal with Neil for the little that I have to deal with Neil would have made we it. We do like you, Neil. Honestly, we do. Oh, we love him. We love him. We know he can take it. So this is why we do this. It would have been catastrophic. And uh, yesterday, I only get to talk to him a little bit during the crosstalk in between Grumpy Pundits and the football show uh, on and off air as we go live at 9 a.m. right after them on Sirius XMFC 157. And I enjoyed myself. We'll just put it that way. Uh, and yeah. thank the Lord that it turned that way and it wasn't uh, the Blues lifting the cup rather than the Reds. Um, the game itself, I enjoyed the game immensely. I did two games this weekend, commentary, both nil-nil, uh, Man U-Watford and the, the cup final, the Moose Cup final. Both brilliant games in their own way. i got to say, I've never seen a game with that many offsides. I, I've never... I've never seen a game where, I mean, I had about what, I have three goal calls in the game and none of them counted. Um, I mean, let's go through them. The Liverpool one was probably the most frustrating of all of them because even though Van Dyke is offside when that ball comes in, and I understand why it's given, it frustrates me that 
he's only involved in play because the Chelsea player runs into him, runs near him, you know, may, you know, that may be a naive reading of it because he does hold. Is, who's the Chelsea player? It's, is it, it was Thiago Silva, I believe. Thiago Silva? Yeah. I, miles away, I was at the other end of the pitch. I was at the uh, Chelsea end. So you really couldn't see what was happening down there. I didn't bring me by Knox. Um, and the replay wasn't great. But anyway, I could see the holding at the time. I'm not watching the game back. And it's one of those ones that happened recently, didn't it, with Cavani. You think, yeah, okay, he does sort of block him off and maybe he does know what he's doing. But also, if he doesn't actually touch or attack the ball, then why are we disallowing it? You know, it, it feels like finding a way to disallow as opposed to has there been an infringement. And it's sort of like as well, if it's going to be headed by Van Dyke at any point, you think, yeah, okay. But he was never going to edit. There was plenty of time for Thiago to run round him. There was plenty of time for another defender to follow Mane in. Tim, it felt a bit like they wanted to disallow, which is annoying. Especially with the amount of time they took looking at it to sort of nitpick everything. And the thing that the thing that frustrated me the most, and I told this story yesterday on Grumpy Pundits uh, on Monday as we record, I I was just confused about what they were calling. And and you can offer a better perspective. Obviously, you were there. You were calling the game. But you I was had a better a- view than me. We were in the West uh, press de- desks in the Chelsea bit. I was basically sitting on the corner flag by the Chelsea fans. I That's couldn't fair. see a thing. Yeah, so maybe I did have the better view. I was at, I was at a bar down in Baltimore City watching, and it, it, the bar, and this this was incredible. I didn't realize this when we went in. I walk in, and there's Chelsea garb everywhere. And I, was like, <laughs> and I went, oh, no. I just walked into a Chelsea bar. You go a little bit further into the back, and there was a bunch of Liverpool fans there. So it was basically split. And the delayed offsides calls, man. Oh, everybody keeps calling it one of the best nil-nils they've ever seen. And from a neutral point of view, I uh, I agree. I almost had a heart attack about six or seven times uh, during this game because of the uproar that you heard from the other end of the bar. And then, oh, no, wait, Lukaku's offside again. Uproar, oh, no, Mount's offside again, what have you. Um, but on the on the Van Dyke incident, we had the, we had the audio in the bar. We could hear the commentators talking about it, Peter Drury on ESPN, and – they didn't even know what they were calling. It said yeah. on the board, looking for a possible offsides. It doesn't really look like it. And then all there's, then they're talking about, well, maybe it's because he's fouling. Maybe it's because he's impeding play. I had to go to my phone and check Twitter just to see what other people were speculating because nobody, nobody knew why they were trying to call it off. Like you yeah. mentioned before. I mean, it was annoying. And also, I did a great goal call for it. And there was loads of, everyone bought them flares. I don't know how the, much the flares are, the red flares. But a lot of people set off their red flares at the Liverpool end for the winning goal, whatever. And we couldn't really see much for a little while because there was so much red billowing smoke going across the field. That was a waste of money. Could have used them later when they actually did win it down that end. Um, I had to get David Conley alongside me to kind of point out the screens because there's a big roof in front of where we was. And so we couldn't see the big screens anyway. So I'm sort of getting ready for the kickoff before we're like, hold on, what's happening? And we had to sort of lean down and forward so we could see the big screens. It's not a great vantage point in truth where they put you. Uh, though it's great to be there. The other disallowed goals, the only other one I thought, because we were down the Chelsea end, so we got to see all these quite clearly, and they're all offside. The, I mean, the Havertz one is wildly offside. Timo Werner came on and was offside more than I've ever seen any player offside ever. I mean, he's just, he doesn't know what it is. Like, people try and say, like, oh, he plays with the last man. No, he plays beyond the last man. He just is offside. Like, it's at this point incompetent that he's still offside this often. Um, but the Lukaku one, do you know what? We didn't get the, again, just poor, really, I think, in terms of trying to do the game properly. 
but we didn't get the great lot many Hawkeye reviews of it. And then when we did see the line, you know, in the Premier League, you get that sort of it's black here and it's light here, the blue line, the red line. And where they've taken the line from of Lukaku's shirt sleeve, you know, we did Craig Dawson's handball last week or the week before West Ham Leicester. And it sort of hit the line of the shoulder and the arm. And you're like, well, it's not conclusive. And I, I, every time I've seen it, I don't feel like that's conclusive. I don't feel like definitively, at the moment the ball is released, Lukaku is beyond Virgil van Dijk's arm. and Both their arms are hanging out. It is so tight. It's so close. Got to have a margin of error. We've got to have a margin of error. Move that frame a millisecond back and he's onside. I know you've got to make an arbitrary choice. You've got to stop it somewhere. That's where it stops. Is he on? Is he off? But I haven't seen one replay of that where he actually looks like he's offside. And you couple that with the West Ham menu robbery the other week at Old Trafford where you pick your freeze frame, you move it back a millisecond, it's different. We've got to have that margin of error. We've got to have that margin of error and it's got to favour the attacker. Yeah, I mean, even even with my red tits and glasses, I completely agree. I mean, you know, I, we were sitting there watching it. I was watching it with Liverpool friends of mine, and they disallowed it. Then they show the the replay, and I immediately go, "Oh, he's on that. That's a goal!" Like, and and all of a sudden they start playing again, and we all kind of looking at each other like, uh, "Okay, I guess." But that the thing that, from an American point of view, the thing that I try and tell my friends who are sports fans who know I love soccer and, and want to get into it or, or watching games with me, what have you. The thing I try and sell them, and this game I think sold it for the most part in a great way, is you don't need scoring for drama. You don't need scoring to have a good game. And the best part about soccer is the free-flowing nature of it. It's not stop and start. As much as I love catch, it is stop and start. And yeah. the majority of the time, they're just standing around. And that's the thing that right you rightly rip on most of the time. The VAR, and, and I think VAR is a good thing when implemented correctly. But when you're nitpicking this much, like you yeah. said, it ruins it ruins the flow of the game completely, and which is one of the best parts of this game. And yeah, I think there has to be something. I don't know. It's been suggested, and I, I, I kind of agree with this. Maybe just do it on the feet. Just on the feet, allow a margin of error. Don't do the arm. Don't even do the head. I know I know it's a score. I know you can score from your head. Don't even do the head. Just keep it simple. Just with the feet. Are yeah. the feet aligned? Maybe you do it that way. But yeah, I think the margin of error, especially favor the attacker. People need people want goals anyway. I think I think you're right. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, the, the feet thing, we've been saying that for ages. That's always been my my feeling on it. Do it from the feet. Pick a definitive, do it from the feet because of the way people run, right? I mean, we haven't got to do this too much here, but if you're running forward, you're leaning forward. If you're running sort of backwards, you're often standing up straight on the back foot. If you're running towards your own goal, you might be leaning forward. So take away the head, take away the arm. If it's the arm, it goes and it's disallowed anyway. And so do it from the feet. It's football, not soccer. Football. And so do it from the feet. There's so much opposition to that. It freaks me out. But it's the same people who don't like playing the FA Cup in January, which would make it better. Having one name for the Carabao Cup. The BBC call it the League Cup. The EFL call it the EFL Cup. And people in Thailand call it the Carabao Cup. It's f***ing stupid. Just give it one name. And that's how you have a proper cup. You know, people oppose that. Sorry, Tim. And then you get the other thing about, you know, I've said for ages, if you're in European competition, you don't go into the Carabao Cup, the EFL Cup, the League Cup. You don't go into it. And then we have a cup where, you know, people have said it was a great final. And it was a great final. But Liverpool won it. And they consider it to be 
the first building block to a trophy this season. If West Ham won it, Everton won it, Aston Villa won it, Watford won it, Middlesbrough won it, Preston won it, it would be one of the most glorious days of people's lives. Whereas they're a bit like, oh yeah, well, there you go. One for the lower shelf of the trophy cabinet. Because what? They can sell it to a soft drink in Thailand, which tastes like actual baby sick. Why? Why? Why would they do this? Don't do this. Make it the, the English Cup, the UK Cup, get rid of the European teams and make it for English clubs. Make it for the fans in the country that it's in. I know it's always about selling internationally these days, and that's great for the Premier League. That's the brand. The brand is international. The FA Cup is trying to do that as well, and that's fine. But this cup, second teams all the way through, and even in the final, they're not even playing their first-choice keepers. You know, I know one did and then changed and all that, but it's just, just no. And next year, we'll have Villa against Everton in the final, and you'll get an Everton fan who's not seen them win a cup since 1995 enjoy it as the greatest day they've ever had in their club's history, as opposed to, on to the next one, lads! Which just gets right on my nerves. You're probably going to slag me off for this, but will that not deteriorate the impact of it at all? I, I mean, maybe the argument is, well, no, because these teams haven't won anything in so long. Because but... you win! Winning! Okay. We, I've never experienced winning. No one's experienced winning. It will make it less commercially attractive to international investors. 100%. You will not get Carabao sponsoring this cup. But I'll tell you what, this cup won't exist in 10 years because the, the push to get rid of it will be so strong. Do it now before the super clubs eventually get their wish and get rid of this cup. Both these teams did not want to be in it. They want to put their under-23s or whatever in it all the way through to the final and make it a cup where everyone in it wants to and believes they can win it. That's why teams like Bournemouth never put a first team in it because they can't be bothered because they're not going to win it. Anyway, that's for another day. Other bits from the final, the penalties were amazing. Absolutely amazing. Like, it was just tremendous. I actually did a game a few years ago. I forgot to look it up, actually. Jason, you and I were doing it. It was Liverpool-Middlesbrough in the, the League Cup at Anfield. And it was like 17-16 or something mental it finished. Um, we had the Europa League final. I wasn't working on that where David De Gea missed his. But these penalties, I mean, they were sensational. Sensational. Van Dyke's is just so cool. It's just so cool. Like Kepa, inexplicably brought on. People will be like, oh, but he saved them in the Super Cup and in this tournament. You've got probably the best goalkeeper in the country at the moment. He's just won shoot a shootout AFCON to win it. He's a great goalkeeper having maybe the game of his life. Save after save after save after save after save. He is so smoking hot right now in terms of form, he can't be touched. He's basically Hansel at this point. So don't take him off. And they bring on Kepa, who is second rate. He's a second rate goalkeeper. And they brought him on because of what? I can't understand it for a second. I, you can't criticize him with a penalty miss. I mean, it's a crap penalty. I'm sure it's not landed yet, but you can't criticize him for that. That's not what he's here for. He's not really training on that. It's bad execution, but... And maybe you can because he's a multi-millionaire and should be able to kick a ball underneath a crossbar. I don't know. Um, but, it, I mean, he didn't get near any of them. And the Van Dyke one, he literally stood on that side and still couldn't save it. The Van Dyke one is one of my favorite sports moments of all time. The stare down afterwards of he saw Keppa line up that way and he said, fine, save this. 
and just yes. ripped it as hard as he can. Uh, the Kanate one, which was a little bit different because I think Kanate knew he was crap at penalties. So he just goes, I'm going to hit this as hard as possible. And hopefully it bends Kepa's wrist, which it actually did. Kepa should have saved that one. And all I can say, because I mean, you nailed it. It, it was over managing at its highest level from Thomas Tuchel. Mendy is having the best game I have ever seen from a goalkeeper. One of the best games, you know, the Tim Howard against Belgium from an American point of view comes to mind as well for us. He's standing on his head. Nothing was getting by him in that game. And, and then they decided to take him off because of some penalty specialists, some Louis Van Hall, Tim Krul stuff in the World Cup. It's worked one time. That time it worked. And then they continued to do it. I was I was elated now going through and going to the 11th one and Kelleher, I mean, the story there, obviously the former striker from some small club. Uh, so, you know, kind of had the the skill to to convert his penalty. I was I didn't know that at the time. And I was mortified when he stepped up. And luckily he, he didn't sky his like Kepa did. But yeah, that was it was asinine, I think, from Tuchel yeah. to bring off the best player on the field that day uh, to bring in some guy who apparently has one skill that he did not show on Sunday. I mean, conceded 11 penalties and put one over the crossbar. In the annals of all-time bonehead plays, that's up there with Ray Finkel and the laces being out. Like, it's just ridiculous, an absolutely ridiculous thing. Um, reference. Um, but that's because of Ace Ventura. Um, elsewhere, in, I thought Luis Diaz, we spoke about him, I think, last week. Again, incredible, incredible performance from him. I did enjoy David Moyes this week in We Tried FC, saying, yeah, we spoke to Luis Diaz. Yeah, did you put like a bid in to try and buy him or did you speak to him on the phone? Oh, we tried FC. If we had Luis Diaz, we might, you know, be in the Champions League, whatever. But I thought he was very, very good. Incredible performance when he gets a bit fitter. You know, I, I don't think that um, taking Mane off was a great decision. And I think maybe if Luis Diaz were fitter, it might have been Salah going off because Diaz was the best outfield player uh, on show on the day. I thought he was absolutely incredible. And we should maybe mention as well, Quivan uh, Kelleher, who made some good saves in the game. The save from Lukaku. You know, Lukaku has his detractors, but I thought he was off. He was onside for the goal that should have been given. And also that little first time finish that he had uh, from the cross on the left, Alonso. First time, opened his body up and it was a brilliant, brilliant improvised finish. And Kelleher saved it with great reactions as well as scoring the penalty. You know, we spoke about this before uh, to a few people, to our friend Mo Stewart, we spoke about this with from the Anfield Rap. And we were saying that, this guy is just too good to be the number two at Liverpool Football Club. And maybe he stays for another year. Maybe he stays for, I mean, how old is he? 22, I think, 2022? Young, He's anyway. 23. 23. So certainly young uh, and got as a goalkeeper 15 years ahead of him. Fabianski's 36 and he's still playing great at West Ham. You know, you do it as you're older. I see Gianluigi Buffon has signed a new contract. He's 78. So you can go for a long, long time as a goalkeeper. So you can stay for a couple more years. But what, by the time he gets to 25, if Allison is still there, and he probably will be, then he's got to go play somewhere. Because every time I've seen him, I saw him at Stanford Bridge earlier this season, and I obviously saw him at the weekend. And these are the times that I've really watched him. And I think that this guy is better than half of the keepers in the Premier League, probably. I think maybe you've got a top, clear top five. I think he's as good as Fabianski. I think he's a good keeper, even at 36. I think Keller and Fabianski are broadly on the same level. I, I say that as the compliment uh, that I think it is. And he's going to get better. So someone's got to take him, I think, at some point. Liverpool going to have to let him, maybe loan him out two, three years and, and get him number one somewhere. I don't know. But he was fantastic. That was a great story. Um, and well done 
Well done, Liverpool. Of all the weekends, you know, this was probably the weekend you were the hero and Chelsea were the, the villain. Something we'll talk about with Nizar Kinsella later. Elsewhere this weekend, handball. Handball, right? Everton, Man City. How in the name of sweet baby Jesus and all the animals on Noah's Ark and all the other fictional characters, Peppa Pig and that, how was that not a penalty? Now, as we record the programme on Tuesday, Mike Riley, the beleaguered head of refereeing in England, who has overseen perhaps the worst crop of referees in the history of association football, done a terrible job bringing better people in. The whole industry needs a massive revolution. The types of people, the way they give decisions, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. Goes back to Mike Riley. Seems like a lovely guy. I've met him a few times at a few events. Seems like a nice guy with his art in the right place, but he's not competent at this point. And it needs fresh blood. It needs some changes. I know there's an action plan to bring better referees in, but they can't be the types of people that they currently are, making the types of decisions they are. Um, if you saw the ref speaking to Ashley Cole, I don't think that Ashley Cole should be on the field, on the Everton staff, talking to Paul Tierney, the ref, like he did full-time. I don't agree with that at all. But I also, you know, the, the sheer smuggery of referees you know I, I, it's inexplicable to me but they need to be a bit more like the footballers younger fitter uh, you know paid better they're, they're they're international pariahs at times these guys referees should be on a million pound a year they should be i think they should be paid incredibly well and incredibly well trained and have incredible resource considering we're still talking about amir when they're not the millionaires driving around in lamborghinis whatever but this everton lodged a formal complaint it's handball from Rodri, seven days a week and twice on Sunday. It is just handball. It is hand f***ing ball, right? Sorry, Tim, but it just, it just is. It just is handball. And Frank Lampard said, I think he said, like, I've got a daughter who's eight or whatever, and she knew it was handball. Everyone in this stadium knows it's handball. Everyone watching around the world knows it's handball. And it just was. And Everton have received their apology. But what does that mean today? They literally had a person watching that on the telly, multiple replays, and that's hit below the T-shirt line, clearly. His arm goes out to the ball. It's in the red zone, not green zone. We've done all this with Craig Dawson a couple of weeks ago. We've done it a lot this season. You consider the the um, Bernardo, the Jao Martinho handball at the Etihad for Wolves, which still smarts Wolves fans, still annoys Liverpool fans. Winds me up, and I don't care about any of them teams, really. Winds me up that that was, that was given, and this not being given. And, and uh, we haven't got the result of the Burnley game. If Burnley have won on Tuesday, Everton are in the bottom three. They could have got a point against Man City, which would have been absolutely crucial, could prove crucial. Everton in relegation trouble. City may well have dropped points, and a clear handball was not given. Tim, just explain to me how you could see that on the telly and not see it as handball. I, I just can't grasp it. Uh, you want me to play devil's advocate here? Because I can't. I, I don't understand how they do not give that after looking at it over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I, obviously I am not an Everton fan, but the news this morning, you know, waking up here uh, early morning Tuesday as we record to hear, oh, Frank Lampard got a phone call with an apology from Mike Riley would piss me off so much Okay, you're going to apologize when we go down? And yeah, partly that is our fault and hiring Frank Lampard probably if they end up do going down this season. But 
that smugness that you talked about before that kind of has that air of that as well. well oh we'll just apologize to them and everything will be fine the, the whole thing needs an overhaul as you said the referees need to be better i think you've suggested this on grumpy pundits on sirius xmfc a couple times incentivize former footballers to be referees now mm. some of them probably don't want to do it because they know the dog's abuse that those guys get on the field because they're right there probably giving it to them most of the time but there has to be it has to be people that actually enjoy the sport well i don't know Tim, you know what? It's hard to be a referee. Like my brother in law yeah. is a referee. My dad is a referee at kind of local level, and they get grief from kids all the time. Ridiculous. You're this, you're that, you're the other, right? It's, and you've got to go through all of that, start at park football and work your way to the Premier League. And, you know, no, I'm sorry, no, absolutely not. You have to find people, train them at that elite level, make it an easier pathway more training, more money, the Premier League, right? This is not just about referees. The Premier League and all football need to invest in their officials. The Premier League should be paying the refs a king's ransom to ref their league, ref their games. They should be Premier League direct employees getting a huge wage of a million pound a year to do this job. And they should be elite, they should be fit, and they should be former players. There should be former players in the VAR room. We've had that conversation loads of times. You have a former player in there. They've got time for discussion. Instead of having one teenager from Hawkeye doing the tech, one referee and one assistant referee, get a fourth seat and have it be Frank Lampard when he's sacked in two months. I'd be like, Frank, is that a ball? Frank, is that a foul? Frank, the players dive. Frank, the players cheat. Is that a dive? It's diving it. Yeah, it's a dive. Frank says, Frank's played 700 games and won all the trophies. So we're going to take his view on board with mine. Here's our decision. Don't seem that hard to me to do. Um, I don't mind the apology. I know people get the ump with the apology. I don't mind the fact they've apologized because they know they ballsed it up. They but know what does they that do, up. though? But what does that no, do? Yeah, but it has to come then with, and here's how we're rectifying the situation. Not just the VAR on the day and the referee take next weekend off. It needs to be part of this. I know they published something recently. The proof will be in the pudding of that. But as, as well as we need you know, diversity in refereeing, I understand that, and that's important. But also it's got to be better people, better quality of people, better training of these people, better funding of the whole industry. All of that needs to happen. And until that happens, we're going to continue getting things like this. And it could send them down. It could send Everton down. It could cost Frank Lampard his job. And in the end, what's that apology going to be worth? And I would suggest not so much. Marching on together. Bielsa gone at Leeds, but no time to be too sad down in the dumps at Ellen Road because already they have moved on. An embarrassing loss against Tottenham signaled the end of the legendary manager at Leeds, already replaced within 24, 48 hours uh, by Jesse Marsh, the American coach uh, from the Red Bull system and very much a student of Bielsa's style of football and also Ralph Rangnick and all the, the Gagan-pressing entertainers of this modern era. But it's a big moment. It's a big moment for American coaches because we all remember Bob Bradley. God bless him. I know. He's a great coach. I know. I'm not saying that, America. I'm just saying that it didn't go well at Swansea. You know that. I know that. We've got to accept it. We've got the whole Ted Lasso thing going on. We've got the the criticism of our mass at Man United as well. So it's a big, big moment. But I kind of feel like of all those names, of all those opportunities, of all those clubs, this actually feels like a very, very good fit. To talk more about Jesse Marsh, a man who's followed his career in great detail. 
We are so happy to get him on this podcast because the quality isn't usually this high. The king of pronunciation, one of the best commentators in the industry, our friend Derek Ray of ESPN is with us on Week in the Tech. Oh, how are you, Derek? You're right. I'm well, Tom. You're always overly generous with these introductions, but I'll take it. Thank you very much. That was under generous <laughs> in many ways, but Tim told me to, to cut it down because it was yeah. too saccharine. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Jesse Marsh because yes. I'm excited about this. You know, if he'd have gone in at Watford, if he'd have gone in at Burnley, I'm not sure I'd have the same enthusiasm for it. But it feels to me like taking over from Bielsa, though incredibly hard because he is now and will always be beloved at Leeds United. It feels like this is actually quite a smart appointment from Leeds. Well, broadly speaking, that's my point of view on this. And as you've mentioned, I've watched Jesse Marsh very closely in the German-speaking world these last few years, initially in Austria with Salzburg, where he had great resources in comparison with the competition. And then in Germany with Leipzig, where he also had good resources, but the fit wasn't quite right. And we can perhaps get into that. But I do think that word fit, which is a very German concept, you have a coach who fits the squad and the ethos and the philosophy. You don't bring somebody in who is not going to advocate football that fits that squad. Um, so looking at the fit with Leeds United, you will know better than I the composition of the squad. Of course, I know about Bielsa football. I know about how they've been playing without knowing about the specifics to the same extent. But it does look as though what Leeds United have said is, let us get somebody who is going to be compatible with this squad. Let us not do what English clubs, let's face it, often do and suddenly panic and say, okay, that didn't work. So now we go in a completely different direction and we throw a few darts against the boards and we hope that one of them will stick. That's not what they're doing here. They've done their homework. They have clearly assessed Jesse Marsh and they've come to the conclusion that he is a fit. Yeah, this is not the Big Sam break glass moment no. for Leeds. I don't think this is a panic. And I, and I know they've been speaking to him for a little while. This is not just happened in 24 hours following Bielsa's removal by mutual consent, sacked really. Um, but they've been looking at this for, for a long, long time. Talk to us a little bit about his time in, in Germany and his yeah. time in Austria and this, this style of football, because there's a great quote from Stefan Effenberg, which I always bring up in these conversations mm. about Jesse Marsh, where he had this preference uh, Dimash says Effenberg for winning a game five three. That's how football should be, and it's it's happened plenty of times during his career. Yeah, Stefan Effenberg made that comment on one of the German talk shows a few months ago, and it was actually at a time when Jesse Marsh was under pressure. And I think we have to tell the whole story here. We have to be fair and try to to look at what he did in Salzburg what he did in Leipzig and why it worked in Salzburg and it didn't work in Leipzig. And the circumstances in Salzburg were as follows. He inherited a very strong squad and he inherited a very good sporting director, Christoph Freund. So everything was joined up. So he was brought in as somebody who had come through that system. They'd observed him, of course, in the US with the Red Bulls, what he'd done there. Then went to Leipzig as an assistant coach under Ralf Rangnick, just to basically get used to the, the culture and uh, to understand a bit more about German football close up. And then he was sent to Austria, to Salzburg. And when you're coaching that team, the bar has been set pretty high. But at the same time, it takes a lot to fail because you do have more resources. You are more resource rich than the competition, but you're expected to play a certain way. And 
that style of football is it's very attack minded, but it's attack minded in a gig and pressing way. And that word keeps coming up with Jesse Marsh and with Rangnick and, of course, all the disciples of Rangnick. But essentially, think about it this way. You um, work without the ball as well as with the ball. And sometimes being without the ball can be advantageous. So your team is set up to essentially win the ball and then hopefully high up the pitch. And then you have the short route to go, if you think about it. And you're waiting for those transitional moments, especially against a possession-orientated side, uh, whereby that possession-orientated side has lost the ball and then is a little bit out of kilter. And that's where you can really pounce. So, yeah, they won a lot of games with, with high-scoring you know, um, performances. Now, in Germany, here was the problem. And it was a big problem that wasn't identified immediately. Leipzig had been this style of team, this gegenpressing style of team for most of their existence, their short existence. They only go back to 2009. But then a fellow called Julian Nagelsmann came in as coach. And in his two years, he changed them. And I think he changed them more than most of us actually had recognized. And they got away from being this counter-pressing team to being very comfortable on the ball, to being a bit more, you know, Bayern-like, you might say, you know, moving towards that. And of course, Nagelsmann was to get the, the job uh, of coach at Bayern. So Jesse Marsh comes in thinking, yeah, here's the next logical person because he's a, you know, chip off the old block, if you like. And, you know, it's bound to succeed because he knows the club, he knows how they play. But very quickly, everybody realized, including Jesse Marsh himself, by all accounts, certainly the club bosses, that the fit was no longer there. That Leipzig in terms of the players, the playing squad, were not as open to this style of football. They'd got away from it, and they were much more comfortable with Nagelsmann-style football, which was possession-control football. And what we saw with Leipzig under Jesse Marsh a lot, not in every game, but a lot, was a bit of panic. You know, it was all too hectic. It, was, it wasn't composed easy on the eye football. And there were mistakes, a lot of mistakes made at the bag if you think about some of the Champions League games as well, and they were in a, a devilishly difficult group, I think we have to say that, but they, they looked hurried and, and it didn't look as though the players really were buying into the, the setup. So um, eventually it came down to a parting of the ways. The results weren't good enough. It was a story of yeah. underperformance, but I think we have to understand why it was a story of underperformance and the roots of it all went back to probably the fact that Leipzig themselves made a bad decision in terms of the fit being wrong. Let me ask you about Americans and Americans in, in the UK and Americans working in Europe, because I don't, I don't feel this right personally, yeah. but Rodney's always telling me on Grumpy Pundits about this bias that the Brits have against Americans. And I see the evidence of it, but I don't feel it. So I always find it very difficult to kind of, see where people are coming from. I know that, that, uh, that Bob Bradley became a figure of fun in this country, went to a bad club at a bad time, and they sacked him, you know, after two months and some crazy results at Swansea. What was going on there? I, I'll never quite understand what was happening at that club at that moment in time. Not a great fit, probably, for everybody involved, including Swansea in the Premier League. Mm. But, you know, we've seen the whole Ted Lasso thing at Man U recently, and Ted Lasso is a big hit over here on TV as well, which kind of maybe adds to that kind of Americans are figures of fun narrative. I mean, this is a serious coach and a serious career, a lot of it in Europe in recent times with some big names in Europe and in the Champions League. I mean, the man has worked with Erling Haaland, one of the best strikers currently mm -hmm. in, in football, you know, and he's he near, near got a great result at Anfield and all of that. 
Is he going to be respected? I suppose is my question here. Is he going to get the respect when he comes in at Leeds that other Americans in the UK have not got in this industry? Well, he should be respected. You look at his CV, you look at what he's done and you look at what he's lived through and... You know, he's got Champions League experience as well as what he's done domestically, not just this season, as I mentioned earlier, with Leipzig, but of course with Salzburg as well. And the one thing that I got from the Leipzig players was that there was no disrespect in terms of Jesse Marsh, the human being, Jesse Marsh, the person. He was very much light. You know, he has a, a sunny disposition. He's a motivator, but he's also, he's a player's coach. I mean, he'll talk a lot about things like uh, fun and freedom rather than sort of, you know, old fashioned ideas about discipline and order, you know? So he's, he's all about trying to let players express themselves, but of course, within the structure that, that he favors, that he thinks is best for the team. And we've spoken a bit about that. Um, I'll maybe give a little example here of somebody um, about whom these things were said just a few months ago. And it's a different country, but it's, um, it's the same culture. It's a different country also with regard to the nationality, but it's the same kind of principle applying. And I'm thinking here of Ange Postacoglu at Celtic. Now, I remember when he was first touted for that job, uh, and I followed his career quite closely. Uh, I saw a lot of abuse, quite frankly, on social media from fans who said, well, you know, how can we bring in an Australian who's never worked in this country, who doesn't know the pressures of, of what it is to manage a club like Celtic? And I realized Celtic are not leads. Celtic are expected to win titles. And in most cases, you have one team that you're trying to, you know, in this case, wrestle the, the title away from. But um, if you ask Celtic fans now about Ange Postacoglu, pretty much 99.9% .9 of them will say, oh, we're really glad we have him. Yeah, we're really glad we have Ange Postacoglu because maybe I didn't know who he was at the start. Maybe, you know, I didn't think that an Australian could come in to, to manage my big club and, and do what he's done. But I see now, yeah, you know, I love the way he carries himself. I love the way he talks. He's passionate. He cares. His ideas are good. Um, yeah, the proof of the pudding is there. I think the same should really happen with Jesse Marsh. I mean, that's what I see. I, I, I struggle to... I struggle with this a lot, Tom, because, you know, why does somebody's nationality determine whether, you know, he or she in, in the women's game, why does that determine whether somebody's good or bad? Uh, I mean, let's face it, there are, there are bad English and Scottish coaches as well as good ones. There are, are bad German coaches as well as good ones. Portugal, Spain, you name the country. It, it's about the, the person and, and his qualities and Jesse Marsh's qualities in, in this case. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Results determine everything, don't they? And if results yeah. are bad, fans, you know, will, will say, no, this was a bad appointment, blah, blah, blah. But I, I just feel, looking at it, that Leeds have done their due diligence and they picked somebody who they think matches up with what they're trying to do and, and who they have. Uh, final question, Derek. I well, appreciate your time on the programme as ever. Always good to chat to you. I want to ask you something more broadly about your experience of, of watching football and not just about your, your experience of Jesse Marsh in that Bielsa is a beloved coach by the mm. Leeds support. And I went to watch West Ham Leeds with a Leeds fan a few weeks ago. And he was saying to me, he'd rather go down with Bielsa than stay out with Allardyce. You know, that sort of thing. Bielsa has brought something to Leeds, a pride to that club, which hasn't been there for a long time long time with the various humiliations they've had to suffer. 
And I was listening to Chris Moyles this morning, who is a legendary radio DJ mm-hmm. over in the UK, yep. big Leeds fan. Uh, and he was saying he was watching the unveiling video of Jesse Marsh and he almost felt like he wanted the players to not shake his hand. Almost like, uh, you're not my real dad kind mm. of thing. You know, the yeah. stepdad sort of um, cliche thing. Um, you know, jokingly, of course, you know, he w- wouldn't really feel that. But how tough is it for anyone to come in and replace someone like Bielsa, someone legendary like Bielsa? There's been loads of legendary coaches in, in history, you know, David Moyes and Alex Ferguson, probably the biggest example. But I mean, from your experience, can it be done? Can you replace someone who is a legend and still do well? It's hard. I think we know that. We know that history shows us that, you know, talk to David Moyes about that at, um, at Manchester United. Even, you know, Marsh himself moving into Leipzig and succeeding this young prodigy, Julian Nagelsmann, you know, who's held in very high esteem in Germany. But you don't get to pick when you're appointed. And, you know, Jesse Marsh obviously knows he wants to make an impact as a coach in Europe. And this is the opportunity that has come his way. So, you know, he has got to try to to make this work. I mean, part of me hopes that what Leeds are doing is they're saying, this is kind of the continuity candidate. And if the worst comes to the worst and they get relegated, which is a possibility, and you can you can do well as a coach, he could do well as a coach and they could still get relegated because you don't know, you know what the dynamics of that relegation battle are going to be. Then you ask yourself, okay, in the championship, who do you want as the coach? Do, do you want somebody who is the logical follow-on from Bielsa or do you then rip it up and, and say, start again? So I'll be intrigued by that. I mean, clearly he's in there to try to keep them in the Premier League. That's what he's been charged with doing. And... Yeah, I think it's going to be, for American fans, certainly it's going to mean that, um, yeah, viewership numbers as far as Leeds games are concerned are going to be higher than they previously were. Derek Ray, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Tom. So we've got to talk about what's happening with Chelsea. Now, you'll all be aware at this moment in time, as we record the podcast, there is a war going on in Ukraine. Russia have illegally invaded and occupied areas of Ukraine and looking to take them over for reasons that only one utter madman could tell you. But we do know that is having further impact in the football world. And a lot of that is because of Roman Abramovich and his long ties to Vladimir Putin. They've been friends for many, many years. Legend says that Roman Abramovich was the person who recommended Vladimir Putin as the next leader of Russia to Boris Yeltsin. It goes back to the mid-90s and... Where do oligarchs get their wealth? It's an ongoing question that we don't have answers to. Certainly, they're not answers we are looking for in any great depth in the United Kingdom. That's led to this weekend just gone before Chelsea were beaten in the Moose Cup final on Sunday, where Roman Abramovich released a statement on the Chelsea website saying he'd handed the, quote, stewardship and care of Chelsea to the club's foundation trustees. Now, that left most of us scratching our heads because what does that mean? And I couldn't tell you because often I can't tell you these things. But one man who maybe can a little bit, I don't know. We're going to ask him anyway, uh, is the Chelsea correspondent, a friend of ours from Sirius XMFC of Gold.com. It is Nizar Kinsella. Nizar, thanks for making some time for us. Um, We usually talk to you about the football and maybe we'll do a bit of football chat here if we can, because we always like your opinions on that. But This is a massive story and Chelsea in the Abramovich era, 20 years of it, have gone from 
kind of Premier League also runs, upper mid-table team and occasional European successes to a side that have won every single thing there is to win in football. And though that's great, it's always come with these caveats of who Abramovich is. Can you just tell us first here what this means? Abramovich hands the stewardship and care of Chelsea to the club's foundation trustees. Yeah, hi, Tom. Um, Those two words you mentioned, they're the two most important words, I think, of the statement. And the statement was short. It was only 100 words. So it didn't really give us the detail. um, But eventually it came out, um, you know, as time went on, as as this kind of stuff does happen. Um, But stewardship and care, the important words, they're not defined from a legal perspective. So stewardship doesn't really mean a lot. um, And care, you'd expect any senior management to take care in a business like that anyway. So the stewardship and care was handed from Roman Abramovich to the trustees, um, the trustees of the charity and the Chelsea Foundation part of the business. So um, one thing we don't know so far is if this, what it means um, to me, it means not a lot. And I think to most people, it means not a lot. You know, Roman Abramovich retains the ownership of Chelsea FC. So if Chelsea were to be sold, they're not for sale right now. But if they were to be sold, he would get all the money from that sale. Um, And then, you know, stewardship and care go into the trustees of the foundation, which is six individuals, including Bruce Buck, who's the club chairman, Emma Hayes, uh, who's the Chelsea women's manager, um, and Piara Power, who uh, works for Kick It Out, the anti-racism charity. They, they, they don't even know it was the statement was sort of sprung upon them. They didn't even know this was coming. So they don't even know if you can do this. Um, the charity commission in the UK, which, which regulates charities, they don't know if this can be done. Um, so it, it, it all feels a bit more like uh, an optics thing, an image thing to me. Um, and, and yeah, there's not a lot of substance to it. So yeah, we don't really know how this is going to go, but um, I think the aim of the whole thing, which I think is the important thing, actually, is the why. Um, I think it was to, you know, show that Abramovich had the best interest of the club at heart. You know, he was becoming a distraction, you know, head of football matches, big matches. So um, I, I don't think it's worked. I think it's been a bit of no. a uh, a bit of a PR disaster. And, and yeah, he still owns the club through his, his holding company, Ford Stam, um, which also, you know, from Chelsea, they've given 1.5 billion of loans over this 19-year period. So there's another question about that, but that's how the business runs still. So it's still the same. Um, it's still a Bramvich's club, but they're trying to temporarily, at least, move, um, you know, the 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 guidance of the club to these individuals. But in real terms, Thomas Tuchel still manager, Marina Granovsky still does transfers, and and Bruce Buck is still kind of. Um, you know, a figurehead as an administrator. Why do you think he's done this? I I don't expect you to be able to get inside the mind of Roman Abramovich. You know, I don't think anyone has ever been able to do that. But I'd love your speculation on why you think he's done it. Because as you say, there is no seeming legal basis for this changing anything at all. I'm not too sure how much Abramovich has to do with the day-to-day of Chelsea anyway, almost nothing. And there was a period a couple of years ago where he couldn't get in the country because of the visa issues, again, to do with what was happening with Vladimir Putin. I mean, he can't distance himself from what's happening in Ukraine. He can't distance himself from Vladimir Putin, can he, Abramovich, considering, again, we don't know what we do know, but we can't prove where a lot of the the money oligarchs have comes from. And we know that a lot of it is invested in London. Abramovich is the most famous of the... Russian oligarchs who have 
invested in the city of London, uh, buying one of our most famous um, brands in Chelsea Football Club 20 years ago. Um, his links to Putin are long and they are deep and they are pretty well known. Did he think that we would just go, OK, well, there you go, then that's him distancing himself from what's happening in Russia. And we just we can just, I don't I don't know. Speculate for me because I can't work out what, how stupid he thinks we are. Well, I think that Abramovich has been quite successful in um, using Chelsea Football Club to to move himself, you know, out of that sort of Russian sphere of influence and create a new image for himself. And I think that's that's what it's been about for him. You know, I think he does enjoy, you know, running Chelsea and, and making them successful. And, and to him, this isn't a business. You know, I talked about those 1.5 billion loans. This is part of his his, you know, suite of businesses. He has a lot of businesses that makes a massive loss. So it's it's for fun. Um, it's also for his image, you know, to, to change his image. And I think that these kind of statements that came out, again, are about image. And, and you know, we might see, we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. We don't know what's going to happen. And I think for him, he needs to try and move that wealth that he got out of Russia into the sort of Western space. And, and Chelsea is one of his biggest vehicles to do that, to show, look, I am a major investor in the UK. Um, he does like a lot of charity work here as well. So a lot of that, is designed to get people saying, you know what, Abramovich isn't a bad guy, you know, we, but we know how, where his wealth came from, you know, roughly. Um, and I think that's always going to be a question mark over him, but it's about moving that on. So people have different opinions of him, having the club as well. He has, he has like millions and millions of people who probably support him because he's given 19 years of amazing success to Chelsea. All the Chelsea fans around the world will probably think quite favorably of him as well. So I think that, I think that it's been, um, you know, a bit of a PR exercise, the whole Chelsea project for him. Um, you know, even since, you know, he bought it in 2003, that's what it's all been about. Um, so I think that this is just the latest episode in that to sort of say, look, I am doing the right things. And, and you know, this is this is me doing a good thing. But mm. in reality, when you scratch the surface and, and find out that the trustees don't even know if they could take the club, um, you know, the, the MPs in Parliament are, are really... Um, criticising him, Chris Bryant MP the, for Labour, he's really leading that charge. And I think that's made him feel very uncomfortable as well, you know, um, about his status. So I think that this kind of act was almost built upon negative publicity that was coming his way and he felt he had to act and do something now. But the whole Chelsea project has been sort of, uh, sort of you know, down those kind of lines anyway. On the trustees, you mentioned them earlier, but I'd like to, to follow up on that because... They're not going to want this, are they? Like Emma Hayes is not going to want to be the person who is now essentially running the club because Abramovich is too involved in what's happening in the war in, in Ukraine and Russia. I mean, they're not going to want to be essentially Abramovich's face at this moment, are they? I wouldn't want to be. No, and that might be part of the issue. You know, a lot of these people who are on the trustees, they're all pretty, you know, amazing, upstanding individuals that are really respected in our in our society you know you've got like emma hayes she's winning awards left right and center for her work in the women's game piara power doing stuff in anti-racism you've got a knight of the realm in there as well so um it, it's it's a complicated one these guys have got to manage their reputations as well it only takes one or two to not want to take the stewardship of the club as well uh, and then that idea kind of falls down and then where do you go from there you know Bruce Buck um, is a close ally of Abramovich. He's been his lawyer for a long time. Uh, Eugene Tenenbaum, who's on the board as well, he's a he's a close ally. So you can't give these guys, you know, 
um, the stewardship of the club because they basically act for Abramovich anyway. And, and Marina Granovskaya as well came from his SIFNet business in Russia. So um, you've got like all these big figures at Chelsea who are so closely, you know, tied to Abramovich that you're basically not changing anything by giving those guys stewardship. If you give these other people stewardship, they don't want to be, um, you know, brought down with Abramovich or or associated with Putin as well. So it's it's a very awkward time for Chelsea. It feels yeah. it feels uncertain. It feels like a bit of a down spiral. Um, you know, we must say that Abramovich hasn't been um, sanctioned yet by the EU, US or, or UK governments. So um, that that's something that's still a question mark as well. Maybe when that happens, you know, it could be like a house of cards falling down. So I think that this, the moment we're speaking in right now is probably a really tense feeling behind the scenes. And, and yeah, it's almost like Chelsea trying to navigate these extremely troubled waters and somehow come out with Abramovich still owner of the club and, and Chelsea's financial strength intact. Um, as we record the programme on the 1st of March, news on the morning that Alicia Usmanov, who has sponsorship links to Everton, had his assets frozen as part of sanctions imposed by the European Union in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, he's been invested in Arsenal previously, invested in Everton currently. Um, and I just wonder how much that has had an impact on the, the thinking of Abramovich here in that these things are coming down the line. You're right to say, as we speak, nothing has happened yet to Abramovich, despite some public pressure for, for something to happen. But, I mean, the longer this goes on, more and more is going to happen to the likes of Abramovich. And it just sort of feels like Chelsea Football Club are going to get dragged into something here that I suppose might have felt inevitable with, with his ongoing ownership. But to Chelsea Football Club... As an entity, does Abramovich maybe need to go further to separate him from the club? Because at the mo this moment in time, any sanctions to Abramovich is sanctions to Chelsea. And if he loves the football club, he might need to do a bit more than a sort of, oh, I'm not really in charge, but really in charge. I mean, can he just give the club away to somebody, to some sort of, you know, Canary M. Burns style character? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen the meme about <laughs> that one. That was brilliant. Um, but yeah, I think that that's going to be the concern. Like, how does Abramovich remove himself and keep his reputation with Chelsea fans? You know, he can he can leave this situation um, and stay like a legendary Chelsea figure because, you know, if he if he if he does right by the club in these final days, if they are his final days, then I think that Chelsea fans will forever hold you know be thankful to him, and they should be because they wouldn't be where they were without him. You know. Um, and I think that they'll permanently be a big club now. You know, if somebody else comes in, I think they will stay uh, a big club, or stay an attractive uh, proposition. Maybe not quite as strong as before. You know, we've got to see what kind of entity comes in and takes over. But I think that Chelsea are, are going to be better for his his leadership. And that that is as long as he doesn't call in these 1.5 billion loans, which some people have speculated he could recall and, and use it as a revenge mechanism against the West and be like, well, I'm just going to ruin... Chelsea Football Club cost all these jobs and, and liquidate the club, which Chelsea would have no way of paying that 1.5 billion back. There's absolutely no way a club could do that. So, um, yeah, the, that, that's one thing that's been speculated. I've been assured that that wouldn't happen um, from, you know, you know, people close to him. Um, uh, that's that's not going to be on the table. And, and then what kind of business would take over Chelsea? Would it be your sort of American style uh, Liverpool owners that would try to run it um, like a tight ship, but stay successful. It might be something like that. 
Um, and then it could also be another benefactor could come in, you know, maybe from the Arab world or, or a private investment fund. Um, you know, it's, it's proven, I think Chelsea has proven a, a great asset to Abramovich. You know, it's in London, which is where a lot of the rich have property. Um, and also, you know, in West London, where even more of the rich have property, you know, that part of London is where the, uh, where the rich and famous hang out. So um, I think that it's an attractive proposition to take over. The only thing that might be against it is, won the stadium um the stadium is small uh, needs updating uh, very hard to change it because of you know it's in london and the property prices and stuff like that um and then two um you know just the general investment um environment you know if this war continues businesses in the us uk and eu they're all going to suffer um tremendously this the stock markets are going to crash currencies are going to be um not in a great condition so maybe it'd be difficult to buy out a club from from Bramovich and, and how yeah. much is he going to try and rake back in? Um, so, so many dynamics going in here. Um, it's it's incredibly complicated. But the one thing I do know is that the, the longer this war goes on and the bloodier it is, the more vulnerable Chelsea are um, because mm. public opinion is huge in this thing. And just one final question uh, on this in, in terms of Chelsea. Um, if Abramovich remains owner... And he turns the cash taps off, which we have seen in, in recent history for visa issues and whatever issues he has had. What happens next to Chelsea? If there is no new owner, it remains this owner, but he can't put money in. Are they anywhere near being able to sustain themselves? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, I think that's the one that Chelsea fans want the answer to the most. So um, the positive thing is Chelsea um, have gradually, um, and they're not totally there, but they've gradually been moving towards a self-sustaining model um, you know, they, they, they get in Champions League, they get great TV revenues from the Premier League. On top of that, the, the stadiums are full again and, and Chelsea make more money than any other club from player sales. Um, I think in world football, so, you know, they, they, they made a profit on the last transfer window and things like that. Um, it's incredible. The academy, the loan system, all that is built up to, to give Chelsea this uh, revenue stream, which other clubs don't have. Now, they don't get as much sponsorship as Man United um, or Man City. Um, Man City have got that close relationship with Abu Dhabi, which helps them with sponsorships. Man United are just a cash flow machine. Um, so they're at a disadvantage there. They're at a disadvantage to Tottenham and Arsenal because the stadium, um, their stadiums are way better. Tottenham stadium's huge. Even, you know, your boys, West Ham, have a better stadium than Chelsea. And, and you know, Chelsea have been around at the top level for a long time. So that's a huge disadvantage. So there's pros and cons to Chelsea where the cash flow comes from. They can stay quite competitive, I believe, for a little while without Abramovich's money. Um, it might feel a bit like, you know, one in, one out, I think, in the future. If, if it becomes... Um, you know, if they're in a limbo with Abramovich selling the club, you know, they might not be able to, Abramovich likely wouldn't be able to put his own money in anymore. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, he put in quite a lot of money. We know over the course of his ownership, he put in 1.5 billion, which is absolutely huge. Um, uh, so, so that wouldn't be able to happen anymore. They'd have to, you know, money coming in, we'd spend that on transfers. You know, if we sell, we'll sell Timo Werner, we'll sign a new striker, but we won't be able to put an extra 50 million on top of that to sign him. We'll, we'll just have to go like for like. So that's the way I think Chelsea would look. Um, and I think it would hurt them. Um, they wouldn't be able to make mistakes in the transfer market anymore if they wanted to compete at the top. So it would hurt a bit, but mm. um, they could be competitive as well at the same time. So, um, yeah, it would be very much uh, a, a massive sea change for how the football operation runs. 
You're the first person I've ever heard to say West Ham have a better stadium than anybody. So now I'm doubting everything you said uh, during the entire interview. Uh, Nizar Kinsella, Chelsea FC correspondent, England correspondent uh, for Goal and Goal.com. Thank you very much indeed. What a good show. What a good show today. What a good podcast this is. And I enjoy doing it when Dunny's here. He enjoys doing it. We look forward to Dunny coming back. I know Tim enjoys being part of the podcast as well. And we like to appreciate our listeners as well. So you can always leave us a review uh, on the various platforms to which you are listening to the podcast on. Uh, Make sure you keep doing that, by the way. And we've decided to read out some of the good ones, some of the better ones, some of the funny ones. So if you leave us a review and it's funny and we like it, we're going to get Tim to read it. We're not going to do this week as like Tim Talks Kits. That's a regular feature on Grumpy Pundits coming back a lot uh, where Tim talks sensually about both kits and balls. Uh, but maybe we should do this sensually. I don't know. Tim, give, give us some reviews. Don't sex it up, but then I'll sex it up in my mind and see if I prefer it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so again, if you, if you want us to read out your reviews, uh, you, uh, we do ask for a five-star rating on the podcast, and we know that's how you feel about it anyway. So yep. we'll read these out. These all come from Apple Podcasts. I will definitely, uh, in future, we'll go through Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. I'll pull from different resources. This one, we, for the first one, we just did some Apple ones here. I'll start with a, a quick one here. This comes from Semfref8 on Apple. <laughs> you got to pick a better name, buddy. Tom and Brian are always on top of their game. They've never had a bad episode, and they tell it like it is. I'm sure these last two with just me uh, have been bad, but that's okay. That's uh, about that... 70% true. We have many a bad episode. We just bin them right off. Straight right. on with the re-record. Right, exactly. Uh, this one comes from Cessna206T on Apple. Perfect mix of football and music. I laugh out loud several times an episode. I learn loads about the beautiful game. And for this 50-year-old Dennis from rural Arizona is sustained through one more crying kid when I think about Tom saying, quote, it's like the actors of Riverdale were cast in a Hercule Poirot picture. I don't know who that Hercule is. Hercule Poirot. We did a whole episode on this. Hercule yeah. Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Okay. Hercule Poirot. Excuse me. And that Dunny was actually, is- I did that a bit Spanish where it was meant to be Belgian. I'm not great at the impressions. Regular right. listeners will know this. Yeah. Agatha Christie's famous Belgian detective, one right. of the greatest characters ever committed to fiction in the world ever, played in movies by uh, Kenneth Branagh and Peter Ustinov, played on TV by David Suchet, David Suchet, for years and years and years. Hercule Poirot, come on, buddy. All right, so let me pick that back up. So when I think about Tom saying, quote, it's like the actors of Riverdale were cast in an Hercule Poirot picture, and Dunny's never heard of Agatha Christie, so he tries to have uh, some culture by asking if Tom has ever heard of Poncherello from Chips. I think <laughs> yes. these two complete each other. Uh, what so was the thing I was comparing to oh. Hercule Poirot done by the cast of Riverdale? I get, between this and Grumpy Pundits, I get so many of your metaphors and comparisons mixed up that I, I couldn't tell you, Tom. I, 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 don't, I barely remember Dumpster Fire Friday. We need to troll Friday. back, because that actually sounds really funny, but I don't know what I was talking about. Well, Cessna206T on uh, at the re- leaving reviews. If you're on Twitter, at SiriusXMFC, you can tweet us and tell us what that reference was about. Uh, this comes from Lake Pundit on Apple. It says, while many couldn't give a tiddly dump about the humor found with the soccer world, these two make Mondays better for all. Hey, Tom Rennie, come on over to the USA for some real s'mores. I've got the perfect spot for indoor camping on Rennie Lake here in Michigan. Oh, apparently there's a that's apparently cool. there is a Rennie Lake in Michigan where you could have a, a, a nice s'more, Tom. Well, I, but I will, I will be related to whoever 
um, that Lake, that, that uh, lake is named after. I will be related to them. That's the Rennie clan. They'll be part yeah. of our clan. We have our own tartan. Uh, okay, cool. I'm up for it. Hey, I'll be in America, but you've got to get me a job. So get me a job in America and I'll be right there because England sucks. There you go. Yeah, we just get your home studio here. You can continue to do serious XMFC. You just have to do it in the morning rather than the mid-afternoon for you. That See works. how the adjustment is there. Uh, this one comes from Lonin RDU on Twitter. It says two of the realest soccer pundits you'll ever come across, even when discussing their own teams, because they're both pessimists. This is a brilliant show. I've enjoyed every episode. I want more. These two together are laugh out loud funny, but equally as great with the serious side of the game. A must listen for soccer fans. Oh, that's very nice. Do we have any negative reviews? Is there at uh, least well, one neg? We should do it. We should do a few pause and a couple negs. All right. Well, I don't have any to this time, but if you do yes. still leave five stars. You yes. can be as negative as you want. Oh, no, wait, don't do that. We want people to listen. Don't do that. No. Send Tim a private email <laughs> with the negatives and publish publicly your positive email. You can tweet me a review that's terrible, but on Apple and that, do a good review because we're trying to get more listeners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the five-star would probably still help with the algorithm. Yeah, okay. So yeah. as long as it's the five-star, maybe not, you know, scathing, but you could throw a couple of digs in there if you'd like. Yes, still yeah. Read it out. Um, just a couple more here. Uh, let's see. Ryan on Twitter, and I, I definitely know you called for this, goes, Tom Rennie looks like a jar of honey, and he has an incredibly handsome voice. Wait, TWF? Because that is something that Tom I didn't call definitely... For that. Yeah, no? I didn't call for that. I, well, prove it. Maybe it was the same show as the Riverdale quip. There's no way of knowing. That's fair. And um, we'll wrap it with this one. This one comes, comes from uh, Soccer Lexi 84 on Apple. So this review is long overdue. Week in the Tackle is a great mix of football discussion, personal experiences, and, and, and it, she said anecdotes, but it's definitely nailing it, buddy. You're nailing this. Keep reading. It's your first I'm time. I'm so good at reading. And more often, laugh out loud opinions. It is really well done. Hey, if you enjoyed this week's episode, then do leave us a five star review. Um, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcast. And if you give us a five star review, and make your review funny or interesting, we will read it on next week's program. Uh, Week in the Tackle also available on the SXM app. It's free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast for video clips of the show and more. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SiriusXMFC. That's reading, baby. Week in the Tackle is part of the SiriusXM podcast network and is produced by Tim Horsey. The executive producer is Pete Corey. Sound design was by Joey DeFazio. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and SiriusXM FC's Program Director, Joe Tollison. SiriusXM Podcasts.